something like there's a high pressure system coming our way as we see right here on the map. Speaking of high pressure, Mitch, I never got a response to see if you're gonna be joining me for church this Christmas. What is happening? Looks like Shane just invited Rick to church. Hey, guys, you're live. Um, uh, so Christmas forecast, um, looks like. <laughs> uh, how about it, Shane? Is there any snow in the forecast? The weather calls for a silent night, but a holy night. There is a heavenly peace coming in from the north. It just begs the question, Mitch. You want to come to church with me? Back to you. I will, I will have to speak to my wife when we're not on live TV. <laughs> Should we go to commercial? All right, but you better make up your mind because church service fills up quick. What do you say? Come on, come to church with me. Back to you. Merry Christmas, everybody. Breaking news, seems like Mitch just left baby Jesus out in the cold. for this whole month about announcements. As a matter of fact, our series title is Announcing. And uh, you know, announcements are interesting because either you love them or you hate them. Uh, you know, in, in a traditional church, uh, announcements are, are actually seen as a part of the worship service, aren't they? Um, no announcements, you know, we really didn't have worship. As a matter of fact, there are some people probably think that, you know, the, when you get rid of the announcements, it's the first step into heresy. And I think some people think that way. Um, but uh, in, in any case, the thing that's interesting about church announcements is that, you know, you can make them, and usually we have them two different ways. We have them on, in written form in the bulletin. Um, and uh, if you're looking for your bulletin, you don't have it. I'll explain that in a minute. Um, and we make them in oral form in announcement. The amazing thing about it is nobody's listening anyhow. I mean, you know, um, we could produce, and we did at one time, produce a copious uh, bulletin. We had actually four pages of eight and a half by 11 of announcements, what was happening during the week, so everybody could see all the time. And in addition to that, during the offering time, we would take time to take that bulletin because some people apparently can't read and they need you to read it to them. And so they want you to read them the bulletin uh, on the announcements. And so, you know, we would read the bulletin. Pretty soon I realized people were zoning out during that time. So we got guest people up here to, to give the announcements uh, during that time. And in spite of all of that, in spite of all we were doing, it was still not uncommon for people to complain, why didn't somebody tell me about that? I, I mean, you know, you, you could do all that you can. And, and, and there's still people saying, you know, why, why didn't somebody say something? about that. And, and so to save money on printing um, and producing a bulletin, which no one was reading anyway, um, and to save time in the service, we stopped doing announcements in the traditional 
play here at Gateway. And, and a part of the complaint that we were having with people that, uh, of, about announcements is people who wanted the announcements, you know, they, they also wanted to make sure that that time was taken out of the sermon. You know, we're supposed to be here an hour and 10 minutes. And Pastor, when we do announcements, we're usually here a little bit longer. So you've got to cut your sermon short. Now I'm a pastor, and I'm sorry, I kind of think the message is more important than the announcement. That's just, you know, me. Um, and, and so, you know, announcements, you, you come to the thing, you either love them or you hate them. And some people, you know, they want announcements. So, you know, we, we just, we need I mean, I get it all the time, the pullback. You know, we've got to start announcements, announcements, announcements. Um, and some people, you know, they are happy without the announcements. But as I began to prepare for this series of, of messages, one of the things that uh, attracted me is the number of announcements we find in Scripture. I mean, from cover to cover. God is announcing stuff to us. It's an amazing thing. From Genesis, the beginning of our modern Bible, to Revelation, God is making all kinds of announcements. So in the month of December, what we're going to look at, we're going to look at a number of these important announcements that God has made towards us in this book. Now, in case you don't know it, the whole focus of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, the whole focus of the Bible is the person of Jesus Christ. I remember one time as a child being in a, a meeting, a special meeting that we were having at church, and the guy was talking about how he knew his Bible front to back, and he knew everything about the Bible, and he challenged, he said, you can give me any chapter of the Bible, and I will tell you what the theme of that chapter is. And so someone would call out a chapter, and he would say, Jesus Christ. With every chapter that was called out, he would point out Jesus Christ, because the Bible is his story. And because of that, there's an incredible display of unity in this book which is really a collection of ancient writings, ancient documents written over a period, now think about this for a minute, written over a period of 1,500 years by at least 40 different authors from different backgrounds, different walks of life, different vocations, um, different locations, and yet it's still a unified book. A number of years ago, you know, one of the big things that we used to have in, in this country was door-to-door -door salesmen. They're not so common anymore because you can get shot if you walk up to somebody's door. But uh, back then you had door-to-door -door salesmen and one of the things that, uh, that we had at that time is there was a, a salesman going around and he was selling the world's, the western world's greatest books. And these are a collection of, of books that are about the greatest writings in the Western world, and he came to the door of a, of a guy by the name of Josh McDowell. Now, Josh McDowell was a, a, a Christian apologetist, and uh, apologist, and he said to, to Mr. McDowell that he was selling these greatest books. And Mr. McDowell asked him, he said, he said, let me ask you a question. He said, if you take all of these authors and you give them one controversial subject to 
talk. Do you think there would be any agreement between any of these authors? And the guy thought about it for a, a little bit of time and finally said, no, I don't believe there was a chance of, of any of them um, disagreeing uh, on uh, that particular, uh, on a particular controversial subject. So then Josh McDowell posed this question to me. He said, how is it then that the Bible, written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors, dealing with multiple controversial subjects, is still a unified book? And the man went away. And he came back the next day, and Mrs. McDowell had the privilege of leading him to faith in Christ. So, so that just that so you you have it in your mind, you know. Take take a picture of this if you want. You know, fifteen hundred years, forty different authors dealing with controversial subjects, all kinds of controversial subjects. It is still a unified book, and the reason it is a unified book is because the history recorded in this book is his story. The history recorded in this book is his story, and. The first book of both our English Bible and the Hebrew Bible is the book of Genesis. And the author of Genesis, hopefully you know this, the author of Genesis is a man by the name of Moses. But you discover as you read the book of Genesis that Moses really wasn't so much the author as he was the editor of the book. Now let that sink in for a minute. Moses wasn't so much the author as much as he was the editor because what he did is he took eight different sources and he pulled them together and compiled them in this book that we call Genesis. What he records was written by other men and then added to the book of Genesis that he, he wrote. So he uses eight different sources and the reason I say this is because the sources Moses uses as he talks about um, the subjects of creation and the fall of mankind, all of this comes from the pen, listen to me, this is very important, comes from the pen of Adam himself. Genesis 5.1 says, this is the written account of Adam. This is the written account of Adam's family line. When God created mankind, he made him in the likeness of God. This is the written account. The, the Hebrew there is toledah, the written account of Adam. So the man who was there at the beginning tells us about creation. So let me ask you a question. Let's suppose you're trying to get information on some event that occurred. Who do you think the best person to get that information from would be? The person who actually saw the event and attended the event or someone who just heard about the event? Pardon? The person who attended it, the person who saw it, the person who experienced it firsthand. Genesis is not Moses borrowing as as some of you guys who are in college, you've probably heard this. Story. It's not Moses borrowing from religious myth to try to explain how we got here. It is the record of the guy who was there, a guy by the name of Adam. And Moses had access to this huge 
library in Egypt because he was the prince of Egypt. Remember that? For 40 years, he was the prince of Egypt. And he got this information from a book entitled, In That Library, The Written Account of Adam. Now, I don't know about you, but I tend to believe, personally, because I'm a simple man, I tend to believe the person who was there telling me about what happened then, then I believe a scientist speculating on what might have happened thousands of years later. I mean, let's just, you know, think about this for a minute. The reason I point this out is because Adam blew it, right? Adam blew it. He was a perfect man in a perfect environment with a perfect wife, and he still made an imperfect decision. He decided that he knew better than God how perfection should be run. That he knew more about life than the one who had given him life. And when you think about it, we still commit this same sin today, don't we? God, I know what's best for me. I don't need your instruction. I got it up here. I know what's best. And if you're not a Christian, you know, you're sitting here and you're thinking, I, you know, I know how things should be rotten. If I were God, I would do it a whole lot different. And if you're a Christian, you know what you're thinking? I know how things should be run. If I were God, I would do it a whole lot different. I wouldn't have put that tree in the garden. I wouldn't have done this. I wouldn't have done that. Now, Adam, who's the father of all of us, ultimately, took a perfect world and by his sin ruined it so that we have the world that we live in today. And amazingly, 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 while Adam records the consequence of his action, because actions always have consequences. Actions always have consequences. While Adam records the consequences of his actions, he also records the first announcement, the really big announcement. That God makes because even there in the garden, God announces the Savior who's coming in Genesis 3, 15. The very first promise of Jesus. God speaking to the serpent who Satan used as his instrument to bring his temptation says this, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So from the very beginning, from the very beginning, God had a plan to restore this broken world. Now, when Adam wrote these words, we don't know. But that he wrote them should be of no surprise to us because God didn't create man. Listen to me, you guys who are in science, you want to argue with me a little bit later, you can, but God didn't create man as a brute beast. He created man as an intelligent being after his own image. And so this idea of the, you know, 
dumb caveman who couldn't even speak, had no little thing. That is nothing but the imagination of what scientists say what it must have been like when they try to explain creation in a way other than God created. Now, if you don't believe that, just look at the crow, uh, at the, uh, excuse me, Neanderthal man. Neanderthal is a case in person. Some scientists look at Neanderthal man and they say he was a dumb, brute beast. This is the real caveman. You know, who didn't, you know, couldn't talk and couldn't communicate and just kind of was half man and half beast. Other scientists looking at the same information say that he was highly advanced and highly intelligent. Now the question is, who is right? And the answer is only the Neanderthal can answer that. Okay, But you get my point. From the beginning of history, God has made announcements through his people. And the first announcement of his son is way back in the very first book of the Bible. The announcement we're going to look at today, if you have your Bible, we're going to look at Isaiah 7, verse 14. Particularly, if you have a Bible, you can open it up. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the chair in front of you. If you want to look into it as a hard copy, that take that. If you don't have a Bible in a modern language, take that as, as our gift to you. We'll replace it. We want you to have this book because we believe it's the Word of God. We believe it's more than just a book. And Isaiah 7.14 is written around 736 B.C. Now that means it was written 700 years before Jesus came on the scene. 700 years before Jesus was here, Isaiah gave this incredible announcement found in this chapter. Now, just a little bit of background to this announcement. Um, the king of the day was a guy by the name of Ahaz. Ahaz was one of the worst kings in Judah's history. He was an evil, evil king. Now, by this time, by the time Ahaz was sitting on the throne in Jerusalem, Israel had already divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The guys of the northern kingdom um, and, and even the guys of the southern kingdom were under the thumb of Assyria, the king of Assyria. And the guys in the northern kingdom, they decided that they didn't like being under the king of Assyria's thumb, so they rebelled against him, and then they attacked Jerusalem, hoping to force Jerusalem and Judah into fighting Assyria along with them. Now Ahaz, he decided he was going to trust in his political allies to help him. He was going to trust in his party, so to speak, rather than trusting in God to get him out of this mess. I'm going to trust the, the, the policies of my party because that's what I do. And so Isaiah is sent to Ahaz to tell him, I want you to ask God for a sign. 
that he's got this and you don't have to worry about this. And this is why Isaiah said, ask the Lord in chapter 11, just verse 11, so you just get this. Ask the Lord your God for a sign of confirmation. Ahaz, make it as difficult as you want, as high as the heaven or as deep as the place of the dead. In other words, Ahaz, the sky is the limit. You can ask anything. How would you like a promise like that? You can ask me anything and I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Ahaz decides to look spiritual even though he was anything but spiritual. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Have you ever noticed how people like Ahaz have already decided, they've already decided to do something and then they use scripture to justify what they want to do. Ahaz had already determined that he was going to get his help from the Assyrian king himself. And you know what? Isaiah or God, nobody was going to dissuade him. Because he knew best. I mean, he is the king. Who's the king? Me. I know better. And so historically, if you follow the story, Ahaz does this, and, and Assyria does help, but then Ahaz becomes a vassal state. Judah, Jerusalem is a vassal state, and they have to give this huge amount of money constantly to Assyria because Ahaz thought that Assyria was better than God. This just makes more sense. Everybody looks for a stronger army. Everybody is doing it. It just makes more sense. And Ahaz thinks he's got it covered, so he doesn't need God's help. And when he's offered that help and challenged to ask for a proof of that sign, you know what he does? He appeals to the Jewish law. He appeals to Moses' writing as his reason that he's not going to obey God. As his reason for not accepting what God has to say. Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And what he's quoting is Deuteronomy 6.16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. So Ahaz... I want you to get this. Ahaz used the written word of God to defy the command of God. You know it's possible to do that. Ahaz used the written word of God to defy the command of God. And you can do that if you're willing to take the word of God out of its proper context. Now let me pause here and give us all a quick warning today. We know, we know, hear me, we know that the Old Testament is just as much the Word of God as is the New Testament. We believe that the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scripture, and the New Testament were both inspired by God. So I want to remind you right now that what I'm about to say does not mean that the Old Testament is unimportant. <coughs> The Old Testament is 
important. But as surely as God's word to Ahaz superseded his word to Moses, Christians are not under the Old Testament law at all. Christians are not under the Old Testament law at all. The apostles made this clear in their Jerusalem council that took place in 50 A.D. And it's recorded for us in Acts chapter 15. We'll be getting to it on Wednesday night with one of KP's studies pretty soon. Now, through their instructions, and they made it very crystal clear that Christianity is not Judaism 201. This is not just an improvement over the old Jewish religion. It is a brand new thing. And they made this crystal clear. But there were those in the church of the party of the Pharisees who disagreed with them. And they wouldn't keep quiet. They continued to follow Paul and all of the others around and start saying, you know, they're not telling you the whole truth. They're not telling you the whole truth. You, you got to go back. You got to get back. You got to get back. You got to get back to the Old Testament, and they couldn't let go of their traditions. They wouldn't let go of their traditions. And it made sense to them because, I mean, the Old Testament is the Word of God, right? That's the only Bible they had back then. They didn't even have the New Testament. This is the written Word. We believe this. We grew up believing this. So it only makes sense. And by the way, Jesus said that, that the law of God can, cannot be broken. So it just makes sense. The Apostle Paul reminds one group who were deceived by this back to the Old Testament movement that if you want to do that, you are abandoning grace. And you're abandoning Jesus if you want to go back to the Old Testament and to the law. And he reminded them that if you keep just one part of the old command, one line... That's all you have to keep. One line of the Old Testament that you obligate yourselves to all 613 of those laws. You become responsible for all of it. And so this is what Paul says. Very strong words of warning here. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, that's just one thing. If you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be no value to you at all. Oh. If you think you're going to get righteous by keeping the law, Christ becomes useless to you. He does. And the greatest enemy to the truth of grace is religious morality. Because you think you can do it. One ceremony thinks. Christ becomes useless, Paul says. And he goes on. Again, I declare to you, every man who lets himself be circumcised is obligated to obey the whole law. All 613 laws. Listen to me, because we, we all do. I've done it. We don't get to pick and choose. Okay, this one still applies. This one doesn't. This one still up. This one doesn't. This one, no, 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 no. Pick one, you get them all. Christianity, again, is not Judaism 201. It is a brand new 
thing. That's why Jesus called it the new covenant and paid for it with his broken body and shed blood. You who are trying to be justified by the law, trying to go back to the Old Testament, trying to go back to the Old Testament, trying to go back to the Old Testament, you have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Period. There's no discussion here. Christianity is not a continuation of Judaism. And let me push this just a little bit further because I want to clear something up that many of you are, are mistakenly thinking even now. The Jews are not worshiping the true God of heaven. Oh, Pastor, that, that's heresy. You can't say, yeah, well, listen, let me, I'm going to tell you who told you that. Jesus told us that. Jesus said, if you don't know me, you can't know the Father. So if they can't know the Father, what are they worshiping? It's not the Father in heaven. Because there's no way to know the Father in heaven apart from Jesus Christ. There's no getting around that. The only way to know God and the only way to worship the one true God is to come through the Son. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. The writer of the book of Hebrews puts it this way. God speaks of these new promises, of this new agreement as taking the place of the old one. For the old one is out of date and has been put aside forever. And he continues, the old system of Jewish laws is only a dim foretaste of the good things that Christ would do for us. The sacrifices of the old system were repeated again and again, year after year, but even so they could never save those who lived under their rules. He, Jesus, cancels the first system in favor of a far better one. So just understand this. The Old Testament is informative, instructive, and important, but it is not incumbent upon those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Incumbent means it's not a necessary part as a duty or responsibility that we have. We are free. We are under grace. And the reason I say this is because if you are constantly running to the Old Testament to support a current decision that you want to make, you may be guilty of the sin of Ahaz, who used the word of God to defy the command of God. And it may sound spiritual, but it's direct defiance to the instructions that God has given us through the writers of the new covenant, bought and paid for with a broken body and shed blood. And let me just be very bold here. If that makes you mad, 
It needs to. Because you need to wrestle with this. Ahaz appeared to the Mosaic law because he believed, it, not because he believed it, because he already knew what he was going to do. And so he was going to find something in the scripture to support what he already determined to do. And he wasn't going to test God in this because he wasn't going to ask God for help. He knew what he was going to do and not even God was going to dissuade him from his course of action. Again, Ahaz is the king. Nobody tells the king what to do. And some of you are just like Ahaz. Nobody tells you what to do. Not pastor, not priest, not prophet, not even God. Because you're in charge. You know, Paul was the most decorated Pharisee of his day before he became a believer. And he said at one point that even though he was under the law, not under the law anymore. He was not under the law. He was not lawless. He lived under the law of Christ. Now, what is the law of Christ that he's talking about? Well, Jesus gave it to us. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. The law of Jesus is love as you have been loved by me. That's what makes it new. See, we Christians don't have the Ten Commandments. We only have one command, and that's to love others the way Jesus loved us. And trust me on this, I would much rather have Ten Commandments than this one law. Because the Ten Commandments are a whole lot easier to follow than to love my enemies, to do good to those who persecute me and pray for those who despise me. It's much harder, much harder than any list of rules to love in this way. Ahaz appeals to Moses' writings to contradict what God has clearly said through the prophet. So God responds to him through this wonderful prophetic announcement. Therefore, I bet you thought we'll never get there. Bet you thought we'll never end, too, because we're just getting there. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will, shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. So, without going into all of the various arguments, let me just highlight a few of the major points of this announcement as we enter this Advent season. And we're going to look at the announcement to, to Mary, and then to Joseph, and then to the shepherd, and then to the the, the wise man. The first is this mess, messianic announcement. The messianic announcement predicts the coming of Jesus into the world again 700 years before it's happened. That's why liberal scholars want to put Isaiah much later in history because they, they can't understand how could he be so accurate with this. Well, the reason he can be accurate is because he was being led by God. Matthew picks up on this when he refers to him and he writes to the birth of Jesus as the Messiah as the anointed one of God. So the first thing that I want you to see is the Lord himself does this. And when he says virgin, he means virgin. He doesn't mean an unmarried woman, a young woman. 
And, and while the word itself that is used here, Alma, is an unmarried woman, in every place that it is used in the Old Testament, it refers to an unmarried woman who is chaste, an unmarried woman who is a virgin. Now, since the prophecy was first to Ahath, it's got to have an immediate effect. Um, fulfillment. So the virgin that he's talking about is a prophetess that he's going to marry. Isaiah's first wife died. He marries this prophetess and he has a son within a year of this prediction. That was for Ahaz. That's the immediate application. And we'll talk about that in a little bit more in a minute. But notice in verse 13, Isaiah has broadened the prophecy to include more than just Ahaz, and he says it's for the whole house of David. And this is what takes it out of that immediate and gives it the messianic, the, the prediction of Jesus' birth to the world, um, because it's to the whole house of Israel. And just to make sure that we get this, the words shall conceive in the Hebrew is hera, which means pregnant virgin. I mean, those are two words that contradict each other, aren't they? It's feminine. It can't be anything with a man involved. The Hebrew is a feminine singular adjective, hera, meaning pregnant, and it should be actually translated the, the, the pregnant virgin or um, the virgin is pregnant. So here we have this context, and remember, God has told him, ask for the, a miraculous sign, as high as heaven, as deep as hell. You can ask for anything. And so, of course, when God gives the answer to what it's going to be, because he won't do it, it's going to be a miraculous sign, isn't it? Something that just seems to be impossible. And the prophet, by this vision, saw a specific pregnant virgin who would be the sign of the hope of the house of David. And I hope you cut that. He doesn't say a virgin. He says the virgin. This is not a nameless virgin. Some virgin in the future that, you know, God will just, oh, I think I'll pick you. No, he already knew. You know, when God called Jeremiah, he said, Jeremiah, before you were born, as a matter of fact, the Hebrew is even more uh, thing. He said, before you were not yet. Before you even a thought in your mama's mind, I knew you and I called you. And 700 years before the birth of Jesus, God knew Mary by name. Not because Mary was so holy and because Mary was under God's grace. Let me just say, he knows you as well. You are not an accident of genetics, a rule of the random DNA dice. You are a special creation of God created for a specific purpose. Warts and all. He knows what he's doing if you'll trust him. Remember the man who was born blind? John 9, everybody wanted to know who sinned, who sinned, who sinned, who sinned. And Jesus said, it wasn't anybody's sin. It's because God's glory needed to be seen in this man's blindness. You are important 
in the grand scheme of God. Never, ever forget that. And I hope you know that. And then the reason I chose the ESV, if you've noticed I've been using the ESV, not the NIV, the reason I chose the ESV for this particular message is because of that word, behold. Very simple word for us, but in the Hebrew and in the culture of the day, that word always preceded an important announcement. Always. You saw, behold, it meant pay very close attention because what's coming next is going to blow your socks off. Behold. Behold. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. Now, I mentioned earlier that this prophecy is a dual one. The immediate fulfillment was to Ahaz for the birth of Isaiah's son, um, but it's also for the Messianic prophecy, for the prophecy regarding uh, Jesus. When Isaiah's first wife died, he married a young woman who was not a, who was a virgin, a prophetess. She had a son, became pregnant through the very natural means. Isaiah eight three tells us that they gave birth to a son. They didn't call him Emmanuel. God says, give him the name um, Mathershal Hashbaz, which means quick to the plunder, swift to spoil. But when you read the rest of this Isaiah 7 passage, the name of the, the one that ultimately he's predicting is Emmanuel, God with us. You see, Jesus is not a mere man. He is not a mere religious teacher. He is God in the flesh. He is God with us. And it's this announcement that all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation point to and magnify. And if it's my prayer for you, if you don't know what it means to have God with you this Christmas season, you don't know that God is for you. You know, you think he's out to get me. He let me down. He disappointed me. My prayer is you'll come to know that he loves you, that he's for you, and he's with you. It's the greatest gift that was ever given. God come looking for us. God come to redeem us. And redeem means to buy something back. As a matter of fact, one of the words that is used in the New Testament for redeem means to buy out of the slave market of sin, never to be resold. Never to be resold. God loves you. And if you watch football at all, you have an interest in any of that. Here's an announcement you all know. You probably don't even know that what the announcement. You see the guy in the end zone with John 3.16 all the time. Here's that announcement. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 700 years before these words were written, Isaiah wrote, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel.
And maybe this morning, maybe just this morning, you're kind of like Ahaz and you find yourself in a difficult spot. And maybe like Ahaz, you've been working on it. And maybe like Ahaz, you found out your plan wasn't the best plan. It's not working the way you thought it was working. And in Ahaz's case, and in your case as well, here's what I know. Sin doesn't just affect you. It affects everyone. Ahaz's decision affected all of Israel. And when we decide to do it our own way, we affect our whole family in ways we never intended. And even our extended family, and maybe even beyond that. And here's what I personally know. When I decide to help God out with stuff, I usually mess it up. That's exactly what Ahaz did. So let me challenge you. Step away from the Ahaz role and accept God's offer to call on him through prayer. And ask for anything. Anything. Now you have a better advantage than Ahaz on this because... You're hearing this message after the fulfillment of the announcement. He has come. He has come. He died on the cross, was buried, and rose from the dead to prove to us he has come and that he loves us. And the one who came from heaven longs to be God. With you. Why not give him a chance? And maybe, you know, if you're here, you know, you're struggling with something and you're saying, you know, I tried it, I tried it, I tried it, I just can't, you know, I just can't seem to give my whole life to God. I mean, I tried it, y'all. I, I just, you know, I, I failed so many times. I'm not going to ask you even to try to give you your whole life. All I'm going to ask you to do this week is take that one area, just one area of your life that you're struggling with and commit that area to God this week. And ask Him. You may be surprised with what He does with it. And maybe, maybe, maybe that can be the first step. to a lifelong journey of other steps. You know what I learned as a young person? I learned that I couldn't give my life to Jesus as Lord as one big blob. And the reason I couldn't do that was because there's no handle. And the reason I couldn't do that was because even if I could do that, then tomorrow I would have to do it again anyhow because my life is bigger. So what commitment to Christ means is this. It means giving all of I know of myself to all of I know of God every day. Now, why would you want to do that? In a minute, we're going to celebrate communion. And what we celebrate 
with the bread and the juice is the realization that God gave all of himself for you. And God gave all of himself for me. And if he did that, why, 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 why wouldn't we, shouldn't we be willing to give back to God what he's entrusted us with? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for loving us so much that from the moment our ancestor blew it, you said, got a plan. Not surprised. Got a plan. The minute we blew it, blew it you said, got a plan. Not surprised. And you long to be with us. Lord, help us not to be like Ahaz, thinking, I'm going to appeal to this scripture and this scripture and this scripture and this scripture so I don't have to do what God has told me to do. Forgive us when we've done that. Because I know I've done it. And Lord, as we come to this time of communion, we pray that you would speak to us by your spirit right now. And Lord, identify as we pray that one thing that you want us to commit to you this week. Just one. And Lord, I pray that we'll be amazed at how you step in and what you do. It may not be the way we think it should have been done, but we know we can trust you because you gave and you keep giving even when we keep rebelling. So speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.